There will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already. Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions, that have no idea that they've already enlisted in the cause. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere. And even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And then remember this. The Imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks. It leaks. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. Remember that. And know this. The day will come when all these skirmishes and battles, these moments of defiance will have flooded the banks of the Empire's authority, and then there will be one too many. One single thing will break the siege. Remember this. Try. I'm sure you've heard me say that, outside of The Empire Strikes Back, Andor is the best Star Wars content. Nothing comes even close. What's more, it's one of the best shows ever on exposing the Archon control system of this planet, a red pill suppository of galactic proportions. Great speech, Nemec. So true. I mean, that's why we're all buried under so much government propaganda, mass media missives, and social indoctrination here in the West. The Empire has no choice because it's desperate and its existence is so damn unnatural. It's a huge shit sandwich and we're all gonna have to take a bite. We were never meant to exist this way and we're so much better than the Karens and Katamites in the establishment. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks. It leaks. Authority is brittle. Oppression is the mask of fear. Yes, Nemec. And this is more apparent today. It's brittle. The bars of the Black Iron Prison are cracking, and Yaldi Baldi's hologram is glitching. We're getting close. All it will take is one more person to wake up to the Wetiko Chimera. One more act of rebellion. One more piece of content from a creator who's had enough of censorship and poverty. One day, somebody's gonna have to make a stand. One day, somebody's gonna have to say enough. The Empire is so unnatural always has been, and more and more are realizing this. Our society is unnatural. Our program diets and habits and hierarchies are so unnatural. And many of us are ready to join the greater life of the Mandeans, the palm tree garden of Philip K. Dick. All natural, closer to nature, and all in our true nature. There's an old Zen koan. goes like this. Everyone has two lives, and the second life begins the moment you realize that all along, you only had one. 
We're done being frogs in boiling water. By Odin's dingleberries, we're done just being frogs, straight or gay. Frogs' eyes are configured by their conditioning only to recognize flies via their speed and motion, to the point that a frog can starve to death surrounded by dead flies. See what that means? Sir, this is a Wendy's. Humanity is so conditioned by the gods to follow robotic norms instead of getting down in the dirty world and doing what it must do to take the road less traveled. We want to break away from all the meat sack rules and tap into our divine self, our godly destiny, which ironically will make us complete humans as the Gnostics and Hermeticists promised. That is natural. No following our encoded biology, but our higher destiny. Whether it's bugs on the floor or heaven in a wildflower, William, we will see everything as it is. Infinite. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant total amazement so welcome to aeon bite welcome to the machine my son and the means to escape it where hope dies imagination must live as black sabbath sang in heaven and hell the closer you get to the meaning the sooner you know that you're dreaming we don't take prisoners but liberate them we're running with those searching for the truth and avoiding those who have found it. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth. I am Miguel Connor, your host and Pompidus of Gnosis. I am so honored to witness your awakening into your full potential. You're gonna do so many wonders. As Hemingway said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. If you think the Empire is bad, corrupt, and tyrannical, you ain't seen anything yet, especially after our interview. As I say often, millionaires don't use astrology. Billionaires use astrology. Meaning the establishment knows spiritual disciplines work. And unquenchable greed and dark magic have always been bedfellows. That includes Jeffrey Epstein, Gishlane Maxwell, and so many others. You ain't seen nothing yet. Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. For this dark odyssey, it's great to have back at the virtual Alexandria, Richard Weber, to discuss his latest book, Predator, The Lolita Affair. Get ready for an exploration of elite wickedness in high places, but also the shadow side of so much occultism. You know there ain't any sacred cows on Aeon Bite, and I have no problem discussing the destructive shortcomings of my own exemplars, like Philip K. Dick or Jung. We are all fallen in Yali's simulation. Never go for retard. I didn't mention this in the interview, but it's obvious that Crowley was, in my view, brutally abused as a child, likely sexually, physically, and mentally. 
You don't torture animals and abandon your partners unless you're in so much damn pain. You've become, yes, as unnatural as the Empire. A full human is conscious and leads with compassion because compassion is our greatest superpower as a species. Crowley just never went inward for some reason. He never faced his monsters and thus became a monster. There is that Buddhist question of how you can tell if a monk has become enlightened. The answer is, he stops meditating and plays with the cat. Sorry, Uncle Al, torturing felines is not enlightenment. You were a monster. It's hard to hate someone you understand. We can never see past the choices we don't understand. When I looked out over this land, I only saw the freedom it promised. I knew nothing of the horror that hides in freedom's shadow. Let us end with a wee summary of Gnosticism. Support may be going down for Aeon Bite as the Empire squeezes the population of its hard-earned money. But the audience is growing, and many of you are still at the beginning of understanding Gnostic thought. Enjoy this cool and short listicle provided by Dr. Arthur Versluis from his book, Magic and Mysticism, based on philosopher Hans Jonas's existentialist depiction of Gnosticism. Here it is. 1. A Hostile Cosmos Gnostic antipathy to nature. 2. A demiurge or ignorant creator responsible for botched creation and hostile to human spiritual awakening. 3. Dualism, opposition between the realm of light and the realm of matter. 4. An elaborate mythology. 5. Myths concerning Sophia, wisdom, and her fall and restoration. 6. Belief in a hidden god, not the demiurge. 7. Difficulty of spiritual progress due to the archons or other hostile powers in the cosmos. Ignorance of the inherent fallen human condition. 8. Existence of the Ogdoad, or eight spheres, including seven planetary spheres, and possibility of their transcendence. 9. The necessity of Gnosis, or direct spiritual knowledge from the realm of light. 10. A revealer or redeemer figure to show the way to the realm of light. Valentinus believed the world we live in was created by a cruel god, and slightly stupid. A god that will send you plagues, or require sacrifices, or destroy Babylon. He wasn't wrong about that. The bastard had a mean temper. Humans can't escape this world and return to the real one, the kingdom. And for that, you needed to achieve the Gnosis, which could be described as true knowledge. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, let us really end with some audio clips from Dale Gribble from King of the Hill. You'll find a lot of the same conspiracy thinking we have today from this 90s show. From pharmaceutical companies, to China, to AI, to the surveillance state. What does this mean? In a way, I feel 
Conspiracy theories, or more like conspirituality, should be regarded as a universal manifestation. Archetypal forces in themselves that will always manifest across history in some way or another. Definitely as long as we live in an industrial-slash-technological civilization. Although the ancient Gnostics were considered history's first conspiracy theorists. In any event, these archetypal forces shouldn't be a surprise in any simulation of an empire that is so unnatural in its desire for complete control. The empire never ended. Well, it's either just a crack in the driveway or the Chinese are making their move. What are you asking Bill for? The army destroyed all his brain cells with their deadly placebo drug. No wonder he's an ignoranus. What did you say? Ignoranus. It means stupid, you moron. Dale, you said placebo. Yeah, I read it in Bill's file. That was the name of the drug they gave him. Placebo. I think it's made by Pfizer. If you want, I can show you how to make a bomb out of a roll of toilet paper and a stick of dynamite. How is cutting down on pollution a government plot, Dale? Open up your eyes, man. They're trying to control global warming. Get it? Global. So what? That's code for UN commissars telling Americans what temperature it's going to be in our outdoors. I say let the world warm up. See what Boutros Boutros golly golly thinks about that. I'll tell you why your license is taking so long. The U.S. Postal Service is bogged down in the most elaborate PSYOPs campaign in history. First, they fatten us up with all those two-for-one pizza coupons. Then when we're too logy to put up a fight, they sell us off to the Red Cross, who removes our kidneys, which go back on the pizzas to start the process all over again. Don't worry, Bill. I'm not going to let my credit and good name be done in by a damn computer error. Computers don't make errors. What they do, they do on purpose. By now, your name and particulars have been fed into every laptop, desktop, mainframe, and supermarket scanner that collectively make up the global information conspiracy otherwise known as the beast. Guns don't kill people. The government does. This is the AM Byte interview. And with us, it is wonderful to have back after a long pause, Richard Douglas Weber to discuss a whole lot of great occult content, but centering on his novel, Predator, The Lolita Affair. Richard, thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a long time. (laughs) Well, I took a long hiatus from writing, and after finishing this novel, I realized why. (laughs) It's a lot of work. (laughs) A lot of work. (laughs) You got to keep creating. Well, hopefully... We're older. I don't know if we're wiser, but I can say we're older. <laughs> well, they say you shouldn't start writing till you're at least 40, so you have some uh, life experience, you know. But Stephen King started writing when he was in high school. He, he used to make derivative horror stories and run them off an old mimeograph machine and sell them for 10 cents. But you know what they say about teachers? Instead of punishing for it, the principal sent him to the local newspaper as an intern, and that's how he learned to write and edit his own writing. And if somebody hadn't maybe directed him like that, instead they punished him, maybe he'd never had a writing career. There you go. There you go. Yeah, life takes us on some very strange paths. 
and with us we've got the moondog vance vance how are you doing oh i'm not too bad this morning uh, on my backup computer but it seems to be working uh, good good yes yes the tech archons were not kind to you this oh, week no. No, no. No. <laughs> oh i went through this last night over and over again trying to get this mic test got it done <laughs> yes it's working yeah well anyway um i guess i could tell you briefly about the book well tell us about yourself so you've been a writer for a while you took a pause uh yeah i guess well, what, what, how did you decide okay you decided to be a writer but what attracted you to the occult or esoterica it's always been when i was about 13 we went to a bookstore and there was this book on the shelf and i pulled it off and it was called autobiography of a yoga and i think the organization still exists the self-realization ship fellowship in california and i was raised catholic and i said you know this makes a hell of a lot more sense to me than anything that i've ever been taught in the catholic religion you know and he explained that in actual hindu philosophy you don't come back and reincarnation as a worm or a dog or a fly it's it's about karma and you know getting your life together and coming back and getting it straight so you can move on and then um oh i just it just kind of appealed to me you know and then that kind of set me on the path and then um i think what really got me going was robert anton wilson i got a copy of the cosmic trigger book i think it was his first book and that led me into well his philosophy is kind of doesn't he have a motto like don't believe anything i say or anybody else says just judge for yourself right right you'll have to ask vance i love the book but vance that book really moved you didn't it oh yeah yeah cosmic trigger i remember in the uh in the uh 70s early late 70s early 80s um i i ran into it and it inspired me and yes uh, robert anton wilson was definitely uh a fan of people navigating their own way through his reality tunnels. <laughs> oh, right. He came up with that term, didn't he? Reality yes, he tunnels. Did. Yes, thing. he did. And he introduced me to Crowley, you know, and I had never heard of really Crowley. Same and here. Then, and then I thought, well, this is an interesting guy, and especially the little part. Well, he was still kind of using metaphors and stuff without really spelling it out about sex magic. He was just kind of saying that sex is the key to all metaphysics, you know, and that intrigued me, of course, you know. So then I started reading everything Crowley wrote. Then I read Steiner and I read uh, Gurdjieff and um, the Book of the Dead and just about everything I could get my hands on, I guess. Yeah. So it's it's kind of been a passion of mine, you know. Part of me keeps going, be logical. This is all a bunch <laughs> of hooky, but it keeps drawing me back all right. the time, you know. And um, so I just decided to stop fighting it and, and go with it, you know. And in my novels, it always kind of creeps in, you know. I mean, um, the first one I did was Solomon's Key, which was all about, you know, uh, finding secrets beneath uh, the um, the Holy Mound and everything. And um, I kind of decided to go, well, that was a real success because Dan Brown took five years to write a sequel to the Da Vinci Code. People thought it was the Angels and Demons, but that really came out first. Right. So there was a clamoring for it. And I thought I'd go further. I thought he wanted to go to the fact that Christ wasn't actually crucified, but he didn't have the courage to go there and turn everybody off, you know? So I decided to go there. <laughs> 
and uh, <laughs> it has a ton of. Then I looked into um, I can never remember that monk's name, the one that kind of was the godfather of uh, cold writing, Tremisius, something like that. I think he was a German. Yeah, I monk. can't think of him right now. Yeah, but he. Um, it was kind of interesting because I just watched uh, a video by Jason Sledge on uh, YouTube again, and he was talking about the Enochian magic, and he was saying that, that you know, there's a rumor that, well, no, it's a fact that D was the vizier and court astrologer and wise man to Elizabeth I, but before, after that, Trismistius came up with a so-called Grimmer on Black Magic that was actually code where he would communicate because of the Inquisition to other like minds pretending that it was language to speak to the gods. But if you had the key to the code, you could send secret messages back and forth. And of course, everyone knows now that Ian Fleming got 007 from John D because that's how he would sign his letters to the queen when he was traveling overseas. But it actually meant for your eyes only, which is actually still used by MI6 and CIA to this day. So anyway, let's see. That's kind of it, my mystical journey, I guess. But um, I did explore yoga, of course, and um, I pretty much, you know, explored all of hermetic philosophy and principles, etc., like that, and uh, uh, tried Kundalini a little bit, but never got anywhere. No, no, I could meditate, but I didn't have the patience to try to raise the chakras, I guess. When you felt the snake, it was actually gas. Is that okay? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and as I get older, I've got a lot of snake coming out. <laughs> I'm telling you, God, I sound like a trombone section when I get off the couch. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, it's all interconnected and it's very interesting. So anyway, back to Predator the Lead Affair, I was fascinated by Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell's story. And the book is, I would say, 50% noir thriller, and the other 50% is kind of a cult horror. So, and by noir, you think it's been adapted now, because most of these movies have like what you call an anti-hero, mm-hmm. right? right? Somebody, you know, but the original noirs was like a PI who was an ex-cop, uh, probably had a drinking problem, probably divorced, you know, had a lot of flaws and foibles, and he gets the call, and he doesn't even want to do it. Then, of course, enters the femme fatale, right, like in Chinatown, and he's drawn into this thing. But he's a reluctant hero. I mean, Joseph Campbell said, you know, you get the call, you reject the call, like in Star Wars, and then you get sucked in. And he gets sucked in. So my character is Richard Chance. He's an ex-federal agent, and he has his own intelligence security firm. And he meets, um, he's at an after-hours Oscar party in Beverly Hills, and he meets uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who I call Jillian St. James. And she introduces him to Danny Steinberg, who is Jeffrey Epstein, right? And... They kind of hit it off a little bit, and uh, there's like a, like a lot of sexual overtones because she was very um, mm, seductive, even though not beautiful, but you know, intelligent, British, uh, intellectual, and very elegant, you know. And he's kind of turned off by Steinberg immediately, but he doesn't give it much thought. And then while they're on the patio having cigarettes talking, Julian Carswell appears. Now, does that name ring a bell to either one of you? Are you horror fans a little bit? 
No, I am, but it doesn't ring a bell. Chris Carloff? <laughs> no, no. Julian Carswell was in an old movie by Francis Truffaut called Curse of the Demon or Night of the Demon, hmm. like from 1956, where Dana Andrews goes to London to debunk this uh, cultist who was named Julian Carswell, and he was kind of molded after um, um, Crowley, of course, right? And it's based on a short story by M.R. James called Casting the Ruins. Because remember back, like Stephen King says in his writing books, in the 1800s like that, at Christmas time, these writers would sit around and write ghost stories and read them to each other for the fire. Kind of weird tradition, isn't it, for Christmas? But that's what they did. Anyway, in that story, it's kind of the similar plot where they're trying to debunk the occultist. The occultist gets revenge by passing a parchment to the psychologist in the library, and the psychologist doesn't realize it, of course. He drops a folder, Carswell puts it in there and puts it back on his desk. Well, the ruin is cursed, and once it's passed you, you have 21 days to live. And you can't oh. pass it to anybody else to break the spell except the person that gave it to you. So what I did is I took this Carswell character and I turned him into a hero instead of a villain. But he meets him on the patio. They talk. And uh, he's kind of turned off by this guy because he's also like a psychic to the Hollywood stars and all this and kind of makes a living by, oh, you know, casting their horoscopes and saying, working for the studios to promote, get the star to do a movie, right? And by saying, well, the stars say that, you know, you should really do this project. And then he said, you know, a couple of them got Oscars, so he's got real notoriety. But the other side of the coin is he came from a rich English banking family. And at some point, he's invited to the club with his old Cambridge mate, Dickie. And Dickie offers him a job with MI6 because they've started a program like the CIA's MKUltra, and they're aware of his psychic abilities. So he leaps out of his leather chair and says, God save the queen. Hell yes, because he can't stand being a stuffy British banker. Okay, <laughs> So he's kind of like my favorite character in the book. So anyway, um, Jillian calls Richard Chance, the hero, and says, listen, I'm flying you out to New York. I've got a great great opportunity for you. So he gets out there and he finds out that um, I named him Saul Goodman, but it's actually Wexler, the head of Victoria's Secrets and the Limited, wants to hire him and make him head of corporate security for this billion-dollar company. So it's kind of a noir thing where greed plays onto him a little bit. And even though he's not really infatuated with Jillian, he can't refuse this great opportunity, right? But as time goes by, he realizes these people are really sick. You know, he goes to a fashion show and Victoria's Secrets, I don't know if you know, they really started this line called Nymphs that was aimed oh. at 12, 14, 15-year-old girls. Oh, dear. And, and they had Justin Bieber appear. And then they had, um, oh, shit, what's the one that's on Idol? I can't think of her name. Um, the female singer. Hmm. Anyway, like that stuff to appeal to teenagers. And he's totally turned off because these girls come out dressed like little cowboys. They have like bicycle handlebars on their, on their panties with streamers. And it's, it's just in tinker toys, all this stuff that really is, uh, 
inappropriate totally. And I give him a bit of a backstory that his, his, he was eight and his sister was 11 and she disappeared, was molested and killed and the killer was never caught. So any kind of pedophilia just rubs him the wrong way totally. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's kind of the nutshell of it. So the MacGuffin, as Hitchcock called it, you know, like the, it's something in the plot that moves the plot down the road, but in the end, it doesn't really have any importance. Like a classic example would be the Maltese Falcon, right? It was instrumental to the plot, but it really turned out to be nothing in the end, right? right. Hitchcock loved to do that. So in mine, it's the sex tapes. Because MI6 wants Carswell to retrieve the sex tapes that he knows Danny has on Prince Teddy, which we all know who that really is, right? <laughs> and Wexler or Saul Goodman wants Chance to compile a dossier on Danny so he can cut him out. Because in reality, I don't know if you know, Wexler made Danny, um, Jeffrey, him full power of attorney over his whole fucking billion dollar corporation so he could really? hire hire shift the money oh yeah and there's it's always been a big enigma why he would trust this kid this jewish kid from brooklyn who never even finished college to um have that much control over his whole thing so in the book i premise that wexler that danny has a sex tape on wexler too because there's a rumor that he was probably gay and because of his age and his position and all that, he didn't want to come out. And in reality, later he did marry this attorney and he had a couple kids, but it was kind of like really late in life and a little bit suspicious from that angle. So anyway, so they end up joining forces because they want to get these sex tapes back. Okay. And in the course of it, um, I reveal some facts about Epstein that I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, I didn't really have to make up this stuff. I just did about a year's (laughs) research. I mean, like, at one point, he asked Jillian, which is um, Ghislaine, how do you stay so young and beautiful? And this is an exact quote from Ghislaine. Oh, well, have you ever seen a concentration camp prisoner that was fat? I'm on the Nazi diet. Oh my I mean, God. <laughs> I mean, she's from a Jewish family. Right. Why would anybody who's a Jew say something like that? That shows you how sick she really was, you know? And Danny, I mean, just, oh, it goes on and on. And um, did you know he was trying to get a genetic research thing of the underprivileged children in the Virgin Islands to create a DNA database? Yeah, I heard that one. Yeah. yeah, that's weird. And then his Zorro Ranch. Um, it's interesting. I had one lady read my book and she wrote back and said she lives about six miles from Zorro Ranch, this ranch in New Mexico, which hasn't really, I can't even see that the FBI ever raided it, which is weird. They did his townhouse. They did his, uh, island and they did his Miami. I mean, his Palm Beach residence, but they never. Went to uh, New Mexico. I don't know why. But she said, yeah, everybody was kind of concerned about him, but they didn't know the facts till they all came out, you know. But now people just kind of like make the sign of the cross when they drive past it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Epstein is uh, really fascinating. Uh, do you think he killed himself or what's your, th- what's your working theory? In my book, I made it so that he really didn't have a choice. 
I have this character named Dasha, who's actually his kind of like property and manager for all his homes and all that. And well, I don't want to give away the plot twist too much, but let's just say she has her own agenda. And in the end, he does end up in prison, but not New York. And she kind of makes him an offer that uh, he can't refuse. She tells him that in the morning he'll be put in with the general population, and you know what they do to pedophiles in the general population. Or she hand, and then she hands him an electric cord and says, "Or you could take a different way out." Mm-hmm. Kind of like the Godfather too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I did put a great line in there when she's in his prison cell. She throws a when she tells him about what they do to pedophiles, she throws a tube of KY and says, I would apply it liberally if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I like to put some dark humor. Yeah. Well, you know, I was an ex-federal agent, and the only way to keep sane in law enforcement is dark black humor, you know, just kind of laugh off the ugliness and stuff like that. So, yeah, and as a, we've talked on the phone, you've seen horrors, horrors that make the conspiracy theories uh, – Fairy tale, not fairy tales, but uh, G-rated movies. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, like, in the politics, it's just so, right now, I'm really disgusted with everything going on. You know, it's just so much bullshit going on in Congress and everything, all this. And there's so much hate in the world. It's crazy. Like, who would have thought all this anti-Semitism was still alive? You know, it's crazy. But, uh, and I did do my 23 ancestry thing. I find out I'm about 11% Jewish. So I always knew I was kind of like Larry David. <laughs> I get, but as Matt, that might be old age, right? I think we all get frustrated, like, you know. Yeah, becoming what? a misanthrope or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the F is going on? <laughs> anyway, well, that kind of summarizes the book, but, you know, in, like I said, Solomon's key had to do with the temple and, and the whole metaphysical thing and codes and et cetera, et cetera. And then I wrote one called the Vonich Project, Nephilim Rising, which is about the Vonich manuscript. Mm-hmm. And that's really another rabbit hole to pour down to. They, the general consensus is that John D and Kelly, the, uh, you know, the, advisor to Elizabeth I, who created the angelic language. I guess it's, I was watching Sledge. He said, Enochian language is not anything John ever used. He called it angelic language. Mm -hmm. But um, Philip II um, was really into alchemy and the occult. And they can trace the book's origins to that someone sold it to Philip II for quite a bit of gold back then. And they're surmising it was probably Edward Kelly, and that Edward Kelly just manufactured this book out of whole cloth in his imagination to make money, because he was a forger and a con man. So, it's kind of like Justin Sledge said, I don't know if you can take anything that that he scryed for John D. Um, the problem I have with Justin Sledge is he kind of pours cold water in everything you want to believe in. Have you noticed that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, a, I think he's, again, he's coming at it from the point of view of a scholar. So that's his job. Right, you know, as yeah. he always says, he keeps his personal faith over here or personal opinions over there and tries to yeah, come at I mean, it as an academic. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of, um, it's enlightening though, because he's pretty damn accurate about his, you know, his historical connections. I mean, like, um, 
well, we can get into it. Like I watched him the other day again, he was talking about, you know, the lesser key of Solomon. He was saying how there were a hundred and over 150 different versions before the, um, the most notable one that Mathers translated and others translated wherever. So the one that Mathers translated was a compilation of these 150 other books. Mm-hmm. So there's really no way of, there's no really one original lesser key of Solomon period. It's a compilation, you know, just like the, um, if you do your research, the Corpus Hermeticum was the same thing. There were all these Hermetic books out there. And, um, Finally, under Medici, um, I forget which scholar was, he was supposed to be translating Plato into Latin, and he got his hands on the Corpus Hermeticum, so he dropped that and did that. But that's also a compilation of all these hundreds of different Hermetic writings, you know? So that's my right brain, you know, kind of saying, hey, hey you know, back off, back <laughs> off. Don't believe all this stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, I know one thing about the... Uh... Uh, that's striking about uh, John D. and Edward Kelly's transcripts is that in the if you look at the daughter of fortitude, mm-hmm. it is almost blow by blow in certain sections like the Nag Hammadi Library's Thunder of the Perfect Mind. And Thunder right. of the Perfect Mind was never saved by church fathers or anything. I mean, it literally was brand new in 1945. So the odds that you have these two texts about these two, like, savior goddesses, well, it makes you uh, perk up. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, I don't know. I mean, if you follow young, I guess there's such a thing as synchronicity, you know. Right. And there's the Asiatic records. Maybe that's where they're coming from. I don't know. Yeah, collective unconscious. There's a source, source code for all this stuff. Well, you know, I had a weird thing. You know, writing is a, I know you've written some books, right? But I found sometimes when I'm writing a book, I'll write about something, and a couple of days or weeks later, it'll appear in my life. And so oh, yeah. that's really kind of spooky in itself, you know? Yeah. So I and I when I write, I sit down the keyboard. Well, with this I had an outline because of uh Epstein and Ghislaine. But I'll just sit down the keyboard and I don't know where it comes from. You know, it just comes out onto the page somehow. So it's, you know, and like they say, if you find yourself write, written into a corner with your novel, it's because you're trying to make your character do something that he wouldn't do, but you would do, you know, and that doesn't work. And that's why it just isn't working. So you got to back out, get back into the character's head. And hopefully you wrote a long character study of him to know, you know, does he smoke? Is he right-handed? Is he left-handed? Where did he go to school? Is he divorced? You know, what's his favorite drink? And you got to stay in the character's head to make it work, you know? I mean, you always put a little bit of yourself in a character, but still, it's... um. Anyway, um, I wanted to diverge into... I put a lot of Crowley... Oh, I forgot. Along the way, we t- didn't talk about the occult connection with Epstein. That's yeah. That was my next question because people are like, "Your work is very detailed and uh, well researched on obviously the uh, parapolitics and the deep state on one side and the occult on the other side." But right. people may be thinking still to this time. Well, I guess he just sort of uh, gave Epstein and uh, Ghislaine Maxwell all these occult pedigree and aspects but that's not the truth 
because right it was already there yeah i mean i um i can't quote the source and you just kind of take my word or not on it but being an ex-federal agent i still have the old boy network and when they raided jeffrey's townhouse okay it's it's always been weird well that was the premise of my book where the hell did the sex tapes go they just seem to have disappeared off the face of the earth, which is very, that goes to the deep state, right? Okay. But in his study, on his desk were two books. And one was the Marquis de Sade's Justine, which if you've ever read it, you probably want to take a shower afterwards. <laughs> I had a friend that was an ex-Jesuit seminarian that I worked with and was a federal agent now. And I saw it in a shelf and I said, well, you mind if I read that? And he says, well, read it at your own peril. And oh my God, it's just, I mean, he's just talking about sewing up bodily orifices and all this really yeah. sick stuff. It's, I can understand why they threw him in prison, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I do respect him as a writer because they took away his pen and pamper and everything. He started writing in his own blood and his own, uh, excrement because he wow. was compelled to write. You know, I can get that. And then the other book they found was Aleister Crowley's White Stains. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Well, he was about 20, he was in 20 years old. Well, you know, he fans himself a beautiful poet. And he asked uh, W.B. Yeats, you know, to read his poetry and critique him. And Yeats just said, I don't really have a comment. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that started the whole battle with him and Yeats because he thought he was the world's greatest poet. And his poetry sucks. Okay. Well, White Stains is an ode to <laughs> necrophilia, masturbation, um, any kind of aberrant or perverted sex, you know. That you is that can... the one where he uses the C word a lot? <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, I have read yeah. that. I have read it, yes. Yeah, yes. and, you know, later years when he was broke, uh, he sued the tabloids for libel. Mm. And when he was on the witness stand... <laughs> The defense attorney for the tabloids brought out white stains and started ask him to read from it. And the judge stopped him after about four <laughs> minutes and said, this is the most perverse, disgusting. It's not poetry. It's not literature. It's, I don't believe in burning books, but if anyone should be burned, it's this. She says, I dismiss your case against these people. You're an aberrant, perverted nutcase, you know? I mean, but... What an ego he had to think that that would, you know, that it was poetry. <laughs> right. Anyway, but, um, oh, yeah, so those are a fact that I can kind of attest to, okay? And then in my book, I had him, while he was in Paris, meet um, this Hungarian countess who's a descendant of Elizabeth Bathory. Remember her? Oh, Yes. Yeah, those killers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I read some different stuff, you know, about she wasn't really burned at the stake; she was just imprisoned, but you know, probably because of her aristocratic status. And she was supposedly killed six hundred and fifty virgins, which seems like might be hard to find that many even back then. (laughs) (laughs) Today, forget about it. (laughs) Yeah, but anyway, this lady he meets is a you know like great 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 Dan daughter that. And she introduces him to Crowley. And then in the end, on on the island, in the Caribbean Sin Island, she actually has him participate in the, be inducted into their, their, their demonic cult and participate in a black mass. But that's all I can tell you about that. But it's kind of like, um, well, Dean Koontz in 
inspired me a lot. You know, he he gives you a hint that something supernatural is going on, but then by the end of the book, you find out there's a logical explanation for everything that happened, right? So I kind of did that too with this uh, black mass and that, but um, Scooby Doo effect, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, because I mean, well, I do have. So anyway, that's part of it. But I did a lot of research on that, and some of it I got firsthand. Um, we can kind of get in. Yeah, I guess I'll just get into that. I was going to, sure, yeah, let's, back, let's hear. go back to Crowley. I took a brief stint. I left the federal government, went back to Chicago. I bought a business, and it took me about a year and a half to get back with the feds. So I took a job as a child abuse and neglect investigator for the state of Illinois. And before I became an investigator, I was like a case manager, which means you represent the state with the children in the court because you farm out the actual social work to Catholic charities or Lutheran or whatever. You know, they're on the ground. But I was a Friday and the supervisor dumped this thick, thick file on my desk. And he says, well, it's something about witches. And I'm like, what? He says, anyway, you know, you got to go to court at 10 Monday and represent us. So I took the file home with me and I started reading this thing and I'm like, what the F is this all about? Well, there were four children. The oldest was like 12 and a half year old named Matt. And he had a younger brother, 10. Then there was a little boy and a little girl who were like, I think six and seven years old. But the two older boys were put in what they call a residence hall. You know what I mean by that? Where they put them in with kids their own age. And then it's a separate what would you say? Um, residence hall, you know, and uh, they usually have like college kids that are, you know, majoring in social work actually supervise the kids. Right. So what happened was the aunt spilled the beans on this family and she was telling everybody that it was an intergenerational satanic cult. Yeah. So I read this to her and I'm like, what the hell? This is weird. But the, the psychiatrists, the psychologists at the residence center that, you know, dealt with the two older boys and the caseworkers that dealt with them on a daily basis wanted to cut off visitation completely with the family, any family members. So before I went into court, I called the aunt, and then we had breakfast and I was still trying to, you know, wrap my mind around this damn thing. So, you know, she went through the story and I said, you really telling me your family set you up with another family that were Satanists and it's all intergenerational. And she said something to me that really made sense. She said, well, are you Catholic? And I said, yeah. I said, well, would your mother have wanted you to probably marry a nice Catholic girl? If she had a choice. I said, yeah. She said, well, what if your mother was Jewish? You know, if you're a Jewish man, you can't marry a Gentile girl. It's called a shishka. You've got to find a nice Jewish girl, right? And I said, well, yeah. She says, well, if you're a Satanist, what do you think your mother wants you to marry? And it just kind of <laughs> hit, me right, <laughs> I hit me right between the eyes. I couldn't argue with her logic. Okay? <laughs> so anyway, it was weird. We It was at the courthouse in downtown Chicago. We sat there in the ante room before you were in the chamber or the judge's office but was like like a big room with church pews on each side in the center aisle so i'm sitting on the left side with the aunt right and i'm looking across and the father's sitting there and the grandmother and the father is like 
know, I don't know, some strung out comedian. She said he'd done just about every drug there was and he was just not there, you know, and his tie was crooked, his suit didn't fit. And the grandmother was the total opposite. She was like, um, I never remember that actress's name that was in Birdcage and she was on The Good Wife, that kind of blonde, very articulate and perfectly quaffed one. Remember she played the the mother in um, Birdcage that was supposed to show up for dinner? Yeah, yeah. Her name. Anyway, she was like the epitome of this and she was a supposedly a real estate agent, you know? But um, the aunt told me she was kind of like the high priestess for their local cult. So before we got called in, I went out in the hall to get a cup of coffee, you know, and I turn around. There she is, and she's smiling, and she's kind of putting out all this sexual tension. You know, I don't know how women do it, but they can. And she would reach out and take my hand and hold my forearm and just, you know, kind of gaze into my eyes and bat. And so I mean, so I listened to you. But I just, did you ever meet somebody that just made your skin crawl? Just looking at them, and that's what it was. And I don't think it was this backstory. She just really had that effect on me. And then she finally said, well, you know what? We would only like, if we can't see them on a regular basis, could we see them on holidays? And I don't know what possessed me to say, but it's the best comeback I ever had. And I said, yeah, maybe Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) But, But her demeanor was like, I don't know, like a great actor. It went from this sweet, sensual thing to just this, like something came down over her face. And she didn't snarl at me, but I felt like she was. And she just spun on her heels and went back in the courtroom. So anyway, we met with the judge. I heard it all. And what the kids that were the caseworkers at the residence center said, well, the judge said, well, why do you feel that they shouldn't see them? And she said, well, I... During the supervised visitation, the father would act very strange, and he would sit there and go like, black 23, black 23, red 19, red 19. He'd he'd repeat it over and over again. And then when the grandmother came, I can't remember exactly what she did, but she did something really weird, just totally non-related to talking to two young boys at all, you know, and it just gave... It just gave the workers the creeps. So anyway, long story short, I convinced the judge. I said, I don't know if I believe in the Satanists. Then I said, but where there's, you know, there's smoke, there's fire. I think we, I agree with the state. We should cut off visitation with the family until this can all be sorted out. So they did. Okay. Well, <laughs> it was weird. About a week and a half later, I'm back in the office and I get a call up front saying there's someone here that wants to speak to you about this case. So I got up there and there's this like 30 year old hot blonde, you know, and she's same like the grandmother, very sexually and touching me and all this stuff. And she said, well, I'm their aunt and I live out in Los Angeles and I really want to get custody of, you know, the oldest boy and all this. And I'm like, well, what about the other three? And she goes, no, I just, I can only handle the oldest boy and all this, you know, and, you know, why would an aunt show up all the way from California out of the freaking blue like that in a week? Don't you find that suspicious? Yeah. And they all, she only wanted the oldest boy, right? So I said, no, <laughs> absolutely not. You know, it's not leaving the state to come with you. We don't even know who you are, you know, or if you're even related. So she kind of went, well, okay. 
<laughs> but I thought that was really weird. Then I went back to the aunt, and you know, we had dinner, we talked more, and she explained that Matt being twelve and a half, it's like I think the average age for uh, confirmation in the Catholic Church and bar mitzvah in the Jewish is about thirteen years old, right? It's kind of like coming into manhood or womanhood. Yeah, I think it's older these days with the Catholic Church, at least when I did it. Yeah. Well, anyway, with them, she was explaining that Matt's going to be 13. And their group has been grooming him, and they invested all this time and energy in him, right? And they want to get a hold of him to have a ritual to bring him into manhood within their satanic cult. Oh, dear. Yeah, I know. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? So anyway, things died down, and we blocked off the visitation and all this stuff, you know, when I went and saw the – but the two little kids were put with a woman, and she said that they had night terrors. Not nightmares, but night terrors. They would wake up screaming and curled up and crying and all this stuff, you know. And, you know, night terrors are totally different than a child's nightmare. They're just shaking with fear and terrified of something. So I made a note of that. Well, I think it was about a month later, and it was near Matt's 13th birthday. I got a call. Um, I think I was going to leave the office about six, and it was one of the caseworkers at the residence home. And she said, Matt's at Lutheran General Hospital. They're saying he had an epileptic, epileptic seizure there, but our psychiatrists and psychologists don't agree with that at all. I'm at the hospital with him now. And she said, nobody knows we're here, you know. And I said, well, what happened? And she's, well, she said, he's been acting strange for about the last two weeks, and every day it's getting worse. It's closer to his birthday. So I said, well, like, what happened at the hospital? She said, well, they tried to put an IV in his arm, and the needle shot out, one flew across the room. And I'm like, well, I guess that could be epileptic spasms or something, you know, but it's pretty weird. So anyway, they put him on some Tegretol, which is a common medication for epilepsy. But then, this is, gets really weird, which convinced me this was real. Uh, she called me the next morning, or no, before that, the father used to call me, and he was so messed up in his head that if he called you, and said, you know, can I see the boys? I'd say, no, Mr. Mendeka, you cannot see the boys. You know that, bye. I could look at my watch, and 30 seconds later, he would call back. with something about his mind that he would dial a number and then call it back again, right? I mean, you could set your watch by him. Right, yeah. So I did that with him, hung up, and about five minutes later, the phone rang. It's him, and he goes, uh, is this Lutheran General Hospital? And I just played along and said, yes, how can I help you? He says, well, I'd like to uh, speak to my son, um, Matthew, and what room is he in? And I just froze, you know, and I just slowly hung up the phone. I thought, how the fuck did he even know yeah. that he was at Lutheran General Hospital, you know? So I called uh, the um, the uh, social worker, and I said, you know, be careful. They know he's there. And she says, oh, don't worry, we'll be with him. Well, the next morning, about six in the morning, I'd give her my cell number. She called me at home, and she said, oh, my God, Mr. Weber. I said, what happened? She said, I was in his room about midnight. The phone rang. I picked it up, and there was drums 
flute playing and chanting and Latin and everything. She said, I got so scared, I just dropped the phone. And I ran to the nurse's station. I said, we got to move him. They know what room he's in. And the nurse is like, no. You know, the state of Illinois agrees with this. The psychiatrists agree with this. We got to move him to it off the pediatric ward. And you tell the switchboard not to ever give out any information about him, no matter who calls. So that, well, then I called the aunt and I said, well, what's up with this shit? And she goes, well, um, <laughs> it was February. And she said, February 2nd is a, you know, a high Catholic day. It's called Candle Mass, but it's also a high holy day with the satanic religion. And they're trying to get him into their ritual, even if it's over the phone. And I said, oh my God, <laughs> that kind of convinced me I encountered a real satanic cult in my life. You know, I mean, I don't believe that these people necessarily really believe in the devil or the Satan, but they're using it for their own twisted, perverted, sick goals, I guess you'd yeah, say. Like an initiation or a secret society or yeah. and future blackmail for each other, honor among thieves. And yeah, thanks for sharing. And again, uh, yeah, as they say, some reality's worse than what we've been told. Yeah. And I mean, even with Epstein, we've had uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani here, and he talked about how there is very strong evidence that Ghislaine Maxwell was obsessed with Atlantis. So was Epstein. They were uh, connected to Jacques Cousteau's son, who was obsessed with Atlantis. Chris oh, Knowles was on the show, and he showed how um, I think Ghislaine Maxwell's brother-in-law is deep in the OTO. So there is a lot of uh, smoke that uh, is leading to fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go on to uh, Crowley in the OTO a little sure. bit. So, um, well, I asked before before that, uh, Richard Vince, do you have a question? Does this make sense? Oh yeah, it makes sense. But I, I was I was waiting for that uh, the son in there in the hospital that were like levitate off the bed, you know. <laughs> well, he damn near did in the emergency room with that needle flying across. Yeah, that was weird. That was yeah. weird. And oh, well, oh, I forgot when I went back and I talked to the head psychiatrist. He looked at me coldly and said, well, we figured out what's going on. He has these repressed memories about all the abuse and their rituals. And in your subconscious, you're going to remember that certain dates are coming up because they told him he's going to be a man. And he's going to have to be, you know, part of the brotherhood for sure. So when he was getting all upset the prior month and weeks before is because it was all coming back from his subconscious and it was terrifying him and making him physically sick right so i said well, what can you do he says well i mean you got to realize in that time period was was called a satanic panic too you know right. where the therapists were or were contaminating the sessions and you know all looking for sex abuse and really leading the kids on and kids have great imaginations you know and um, but I don't think this was that at all. And I said, well, what do you think is going to happen to Matt? And he says, well, if we can't get in there and clear up the pain and the abuse and the crap they've put in his head, I'm afraid he's going to be on a watchtower with a rifle someday. You know, and I said, Jesus, well, I hope you can help him. But um, that really convinced me. I mean, this is a head shrink, you know was Jewish, you know? He, he said, I don't want to believe in this stuff, but it's staring me right in the face, and this is killing this boy. 
you know? Well, that's all, it's, it's all mental and the power of the mind, but uh, have you ever seen any physical powers that these groups have ex- exerted uh, or, uh, or heard about it? No, although they make good rock and roll. They make good oh, rock and bands. Oh yeah, there's just this whole conspiracy theory about everything now being. Well, the Rolling Stones were Satanists, that's for sure. But Motley Crue, not so much. No, well, Jimmy Page. I mean, he bought. Yeah, Rolling he was a Thelema. Yeah, it's true. He was totally Thelema. Well, we'll get into. I th- knew it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but he never spent a night in the house because he had people stay there, and they got spooked out. So I think he looked looked from the outside once and didn't have the balls to spend a night there yeah when he bought crowley's mansion <laughs> yeah so now they're rebuilding the whole thing and i i just i don't see well let's get into crowley and the oto a little bit because like i said i um been knee deep in this stuff so i tried i looked into the masons and i find that the average mason I mean, I had really close friends that were 33-degree masons and shriners, and I tried to talk to them about Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma book. They'd never read it. They'd heard of it, but they'd never actually read it, you know? And I found it in a, in a, like a half-price bookstore, and I read that. I think that kind of got me on the path, too, because to understand that book, you've got to read like 20 other books, because it was so, it's so deep if you've never, have you ever seen it? Yeah, it's not an easy read. That's no, right. no. I mean, you really have to know what he's talking about with source books. So I think that's why I started reading about all this stuff to try to figure it out, right? But uh, the weirdest one, I tried the OTO because I was writing the other book. I just wanted to see them in person and get a feel, but they never responded. And I've looked on the internet and saying everybody's saying that, you know, and they're having a big inner fight about who's in head of it and who's this and that. But I tried to look into the Theosophical Society. And I'd read all of her Blavatsky's books. So I actually went to their headquarters in Wheaton, Illinois. It's, it's really quite remarkable. It kind of looks like a, it's all stone. Yeah. You know? yeah. We had our uh, AM bike conference last summer there. It was awesome. Well, they really turned me off because I went to the bookstore. Then I went into their library. I don't know if you saw that, but it's, yeah, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. But you know what kind of creeped me out? I think it's. I've been seeing too much horror, but there were old ladies running the library that kind of remind me of Rosemary's Baby, you know, these <laughs> nice little old ladies with their glasses on the chain, you know, and think they help you. And I'm like, ah. But anyway, I was with the lady. Uh, it's, a, it's a Harry Potter era, so these these tropes are fine. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I went, it was with this lady, and then we went in and we sat and went and sat down in a lecture. I wasn't sitting there five minutes, and this guy came up, and he was really rude and demanding. He says, well, you can't be here. You can't participate in this. You know, you're not an official member. You know? I said, what? I said, was there something secret going on here? What's going on? He says, well, no, you're going to have to leave immediately. And I give me your name, contact number, I have somebody call you. So I said, well so much for that and then about two weeks later i got a call from this guy and he said well yes if you want to join fine but you'll have to under uh participate in our doctrine kind of like bible studies of blavatsky's works and i said i've read them all three times i don't really need somebody to explain to me what the hell (laughs) he's trying to say what are you talking about so that just totally turned me off you know i don't I wouldn't go to a Bible study. They'd kick me out, I'm sure. You know? Oh, no. They need your soul. I, yeah. <laughs> but I don't. 
I don't need somebody to explain to me, you know, what Blavatsky was saying, you know. And I looked into her too, you know. She was part con woman and fraud. She, uh, they found long passages in all her books that were directly plagiarized from other books without any acknowledgement or annotations. And after she died, one of the butlers in the house admitted that he was passing these messages from the secret chiefs threw a thing in the wall to this little cabinet that she would open and they would magically appear. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, well, the secret chiefs is such a crazy thing anyway. And the golden dawn was of course into that too. So anyway, let's talk about Crowley. Um, like I said, I got interested in him through uh, Robert Anton Wilson, right? Read all his books. Um, but with me, He's kind of like using that old axiom maybe your parents used to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Right. <laughs> yeah. But for wanting to be, you know, an intellectual poet and keeper of the secret knowledge, you can't live your life like a degenerate and then tell people not to do that. That's crazy. Like, um, I was listening to uh, Lon uh, Milo Duquette the other day. And he was quoting from Crowley's Magic and Theory and Practice. And in that book, he says very clearly that if you want to get into ceremonial magic, do not, do not try to conjure the devil. Do not try to conjure demons. Do not make pacts with demons, you know. Don't let a demon ever take control of you. He just says it right there. He said that the only real path is to find your holy guardian angel, and it's a rod of light that, you know, with the Kundalini idea that shoots up into your kether and you commune directly through your gar holy guardian angel with God or whatever you want to call it, you know, or Sophia or whatever, right? But yeah. in his life, he didn't do that at all. When he first went to the Golden Dawn and he met um, Bennett, the uh, – I think you know about him, right? He was kind of a Buddhist and uh, had bad asthma and everything. And when they first met, Bennett came up to him after the meeting and said, you've been playing with the Gosha, my goetic demons, my young brother. And, of course, Crowley denied it, but he had been. <laughs> and then Bennett replied, well, then if they're playing with you, brother, you know. And then they got a flat together and they did all sorts of stuff, but – Crowley, I mean, I admire his sense of uh, anti-authoritism, but he just plunged head into everything, you know, without any caution or anything. But the main thing, going back to what he said in Magic and Theory of Practice, he totally violated. If you read the account where he was in Algeria with Newberg, remember he went to with Victor Newberg was kind of a, oh, really naive, you know gay guy and they were lovers and he totally controlled them and had them totally in the mind fuck you know and they went traveled to Nigeria, and he was trying to do john d's uh calls of the aethers right and they finally got to a remote place in the desert and they made the magic circle and they made the triangle right and well they made calls to the ethers right and he wanted to conjure up the demon from the abyss uh, chorus zone. Well, Crowley violated any rule of ceremonial magic. I mean, you have the circle of protection that you're supposed to stay in, right? Then you have the triangle, right? 
And the triangle is where you're supposed to manifest the demon or the angel, and that's supposed to bind them in the triangle, and they can't influence you, take you over, or hurt you because you're in the protective circle. Well, do you know what Crowley did? He sat right in the goddamn triangle. <laughs> I mean, and this wasn't when he was 20 years old. You know, this is when he supposedly knew his stuff. You know, and of course, what happened is he let himself be possessed by Corazon. And then, well, there's two accounts. One says that he was engaging Newberg in conversation, which like in the Exorcist, you're never supposed to really talk to the demon, right? Because he'll get control of your mind. Exactly. And they said that he slowly, because Newberg wasn't paying attention, started to erase the edges of the circle, right? And... The other says that Newberg saw it and closed the circle again. But the other account is that he leaped into the circle and savagely attacked Newberg as like he was possessed by the demon. And Crowley was close saying after it was all over, he just said, well, I didn't think we, either one of us would ever live through that. Well, how can you say in your treatise, don't ever do that, and then go out in the middle of the Algerian desert with some young guy that you brainwashed and do the exact opposite. Exactly. Right? Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So well, how long ago uh, was it that he wrote, you know, that passage, you know, between oh, the that time and they went to Algeria? Maybe it was his oh, younger self before he got corrupted. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but he was corrupted from when he was a kid. He did that thing where he tried to kill a cat nine different ways. I mean, what do they say about serial killers? They start with torturing animals. You know, he Yeah, that's a hard one to, to get over he with. He tried to burn it, he mutilated, he hung it and everything to see if it would come back to life. That's not normal behavior for a no. child, you know? And um he um I don't really have anything against sex magic, you know, we can talk about that, but him if I look at it from like a Eastern philosophy point of view, and I've heard people say this, he never got below above his bottom two chakras he was totally infatuated with sexual energy and never really tried to raise it above that because he just loved sex so much you know like his uh his one practice to attain uh nirvana or a high meditative state is to have sex to the point with multiple women or men to physical exhaustion where you're put into a dissociative state you know I mean, come on, you know, I mean, <laughs> it yeah. would be good for your health and it's certainly no way to find God, is it? It's been an amazing interview. Always love chatting with you. Where can people find out more about your work and, and definitely engage and purchase your work? Oh, well, they can go to Amazon.com. There's an ebook, a uh, paperback and a hardcover. And if they just punch it. Just look it up under Predator to the Lita file come up. But if you go to Amazon.com backslash author backslash Richard Weber, you'll get right to my author's page and you can see all the books. Okay. Then I made a new website that promotes the book, but it's kind of debunking all these conspiracy theories. And that's www.jeffreyepsteinconspiracycia.com. It's kind of a long title, but I wanted to, the keywords in there so Google would find it. So that's Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy CIA dot com. And I've got all sorts of, uh, 
got a blog on there debunking all these conspiracy theories and videos about the satanic panic and Epstein and Ghislaine and, um, oh, you name it, just about everything I'm trying to cover in there. You know, I know you can look it up on YouTube, but, you know, kind of find them all in one place is good, too. Wonderful. Well, check it out. Check out his book. And, yeah, I look forward to uh, yes, please checking buy, out your blog. Please buy the book. It, it's it's. I made it like Dan Brown with two and a half page chapters maximum. So it's a quick read. And you'll, like I said, the main character's old fashioned. He's politically incorrect. He's, you know, a little bit of a chauvinist, but he's soft hearted and he's there to save the kids and the women and everything. And he kind of comes to grips with his own greed and lust, you know, and then Carswell, it's just, I don't know. I'm going to use him again. He's kind of a, combination of uh sherlock holmes and um oh i can't remember psychic detective i guess you'd say or occult detectives from pulp fiction you know that kind of thing so anyway i think they'll love the book wonderful we'll check it out well first of all vance thanks for keeping us company on this uh journey oh it's uh been very very interesting always love to hear different things about crowley you know he was a paradox, that's for sure. Oh yeah, and, I guess uh, so. Another word for hypocrite, I guess. But. <laughs> yeah, I think you're. I think you're being a bit of a, a apologist for him, frankly. <laughs> not really. No, I, I not not for his personality. I mean, he's horrible. But um, it's just that the books that I read, uh, I, I I got something out of them, and I thought they were didn't reflect his actual in life personality. Oh, so one one quick story that this Prince Stash told about Crowley. Uh, he was in London, and he made a bet with these rich people, you know, because he hung out with the elite, right? And he lost the bet. So the bet was he did take him out to, like, the Cafe Royale, like 12 of them for dinner, right? And he was supposed to pay. Well, when the check came, he pulled out his wallet, and he had a 1,000-pound note. Well, a 1,000-pound note back then was worth, like, $200,000 today, so the restaurant couldn't cash it, so somebody else had to pick up the tab. Oh, smart move. <laughs> yeah, but that's what kind of a jerk he was. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, Richard, as always, it was great having you back on, and definitely look forward to the next time we can chat. Thanks for uh, coming on Aeon Bite. Yeah, I'd like to talk to uh, like-minded individuals about metaphysics and the occult, not even hawking my book. So fine wonderful okay and there you have it yes shining crazy diamonds richard is so much damn fun and so much damn enlightening in our second part get ready to go deeper into crowley and dark occultism get ready to go deeper into conspiracy theory research techniques and the state of our fallen culture you won't be the same after these extra 40 minutes. So please become a member for the full ball tingling gnosis. It's only $6.99 a month for AB Prime or $4.99 at Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. You'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord for AB Prime members and higher level patrons. If you find value in this content, please help grow this red pill cafeteria. Your help can be in the form of a one-time donation on Stripe or the US mail or even crypto. 
There is also a link on the show notes if you want to leave a tip or you can tip on any YouTube show. There's always the merch store and an Amazon wish list. And consider the Finding Hermes program, where we have monthly exclusive meetings and presentations, with many past guests hanging out for some high-octane gnosis. I also have a one-on-one tier if you want to talk every month about Gnosticism or other heresies, or discuss healing modalities or addiction recovery. If you need any help with uh, these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help. And I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.